Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast. Start your week the right way with a laugh and a dose of motivation. Listen to the stories of our guests, learn from their experiences and how they have built a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis. And if you could like, follow or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Today, I'm joined by fellow ocean rower, Vicky Anstey. In 2021, she and her team, Girls Who Dare, broke the world record for the fastest female trio to row the Pacific Ocean in a time of 60 days, 17 hours and 6 minutes. Not afraid of a challenge, she has also starred in Channel 4's SAS Who Dares Wins. And in 2022, she completed the Beyond the Ultima Ice Ultra, a 250k running race held in northern Sweden. And Vicky joins me now. Vicky, thank you for coming on the pod. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, anytime. So we start um, every podcast the same. Um, How do you define winning in your life? Oh, good question. Um, I think it has to be in line with your values I think there's winning and there's winning well uh winning in a way that you feel proud uh to stand behind um you know obviously where you've met your objectives whatever they might be but where you've behaved with integrity and authenticity um yeah I'd say that's pretty important and I've certainly experienced uh occasions in my life where I've won well in times where I feel like I haven't um, and I know what I'd rather. Yeah, you've got to be true to yourself. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about all these challenges, but let's roll it back. Tell us about your childhood, and um, where does this sense of adventure come from? Ah, well, um, I'm not a, a kind of born athlete or a lifelong adventure seeker, very far from it. I grew up in North Yorkshire. Um, where in North Yorkshire? Uh, in a tiny village called Ingleby Arncliffe. I had to um, do that because Duncan Roy will be listening. <laughs> It'll be buzzing that he got a shout out. <laughs> How unlikely is that, that two ocean rowers would uh, come from the same village in the middle of nowhere? But there we go. Um, must be something in the air in North Yorkshire, in Ingleby Uncliffe. But, um, oh, yeah, don't. So <laughs> I'll never hear the end of it now, Vic. Well done. Here, <laughs> yeah, we're being built different up here, man. <laughs> My terrible York, York tracks. No, sorry, you were saying. That's better than mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in North Yorkshire. I have a, a sister who's uh, two and a half years older than me. Um, very kind of normal life, didn't particularly enjoy sports, wasn't particularly active or interested in that side of things. Um, I think I very much grew up according to other people's narratives, if I am honest in reflection on my upbringing. Um, I definitely didn't have any women around me who uh, inspired me to uh, do anything particularly extraordinary uh, with my life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of didn't, didn't come from the same beginnings as lots of other adventurers, female or otherwise. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and then that kind of continued through school and university. I obviously played sports cause you know, you have to, but I didn't for go the out so, to for the social side as well. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I didn't go out seeking it and, um, I ended up in advertising and marketing after university which I absolutely loved um you know it was that was that was kind of what I wanted to do um and I had this sort of bizarre obsession with brands and advertising and you know being able to shout out the name of the brand within three seconds of the advert being on tv um 
so I, I really immersed myself in that world and I absolutely loved it. Spent about a decade in advertising, you know, did really, really well, loved my career. It was pretty mad and hedonistic at times. Um, you know, you put your own life on hold and uh, and your own health to some degree, <laughs> for honest, long hours, late nights, lots of... Um, lots of partying and <laughs> in, uh, in London as well yeah in yeah. London and uh, you know I worked with some really big companies I headed up um, Ikea and then Eurostars um, external advertising so big jobs lots of responsibility big budgets but I think uh, you know ultimately I reached a point where I was just like god is this everything that life has to offer me um, and yeah, I had a bit of an epiphany moment, kind of looking at my reflection back in my computer screen and just thinking, fuck, is this it? <laughs> um, you know, I've lost any sense of kind of who I am. And um, uh, and so I actually someone recommended to me around that time. It's funny how these things kind of the stars align. But someone said to me, oh, this is um, this really great exercise class. This like workout called bar. And um, and it's like exercising without exercising. So I was like, okay, sign me up. I'll, um, I'm good for that. So I went along and I got completely hooked immediately. Um, you've probably never heard of bar. I've never heard of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure 90% of the people yeah, listening to right. So please explain. What, what is bar? So bar is based on ballet movement. Okay. So, you know, if you think about the S&C involved in any kind of sport or movement discipline, you know, you don't train to row by rowing you do S&C in the gym that's going to kind of promote the right movements yeah. and strength and, and, and what have you. So ballet is exactly the same. So there's an element to ballet training that is called bar, which are movements that you do at a ballet bar on a wall. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's very much about building strength, flexibility as well, but focusing on your posture. I kind of call it the glue that holds my body together because it really does amazing things for your ligaments your tendons your, you know your oh, joints a facets of that, a bit of that in my life right. 12 years in the military yeah. i'm battered so it's the <laughs> kind of stuff that most people overlook and if you think about any ballet dancer male or female like their physique is oh. off the charts look right? at jean-claude van damme kickboxer exactly. well, hard so as well which you know? yeah. right so um anyway so i was kind of introduced to this class and uh uh, yeah, I got completely hooked on it. And then I started sort of investigating it a bit more, obviously, within the context of my sort of increasing disillusionment in my, my advertising career. And um, and I discovered that the original method was called Lottie Burke, which was named after this woman who, who'd invented it. And there was one studio in London, in Chelsea, um, that you could train at. And that was it. So I kind of signed up to this training course that cost me an exorbitant amount of money. I'm not even going to tell you how much. Yeah. It's crazy because there was just nowhere else to train. And it was in Chelsea. And it was in Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. So I signed up to that and I spent the next six months. I quit my career. Yeah. I was so hooked on this method. And, and also just kind of from... You really went all in there, yeah. didn't you? You were like, yeah, yeah, I'm all in. Yeah. Well, that that is kind of how I approach most things, yeah. <laughs> to be fair. And... Um, yeah, and I, I also with my my advertising marketing hat on, I just thought like more people need to know about it. Like, how do how does no one know about this? It's amazing if it can like genuinely transform my body, then it it can ha it can do amazing things for any, for anyone. Um, and I'd kind of also got into running at that time, and so Bar was helping me stay injury free. I then started doing marathons. Then one marathon led to another marathon, and then by 
you know, a certain point I'd run five different marathons in different cities in the world and, um, you know, was kind of really getting into that. But, um, yeah, so I decided to quit my job and train to become a bar instructor. So I did that. And then, um, you know, my ambition didn't stop there. I wanted to, to set up my own studio. Um, and I found a space in Richmond and, um, you know, set about trying to create a business out of it. No, amazing. I'm guessing the studio is still open. It's not. Oh, it's not. No. Oh, awkward. Sorry. <laughs> 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 I was going to say, no. It what led to better things. So what, um, what advice would you give people? Because it takes a lot of balls. You yeah. know, we talk about people always think we're brave for ocean rowing. Yeah. But to put your money where your mouth is. So yeah. what, what advice would you give to people that are looking to maybe pursue their passion and hope it will be a career? Um, you know, it's interesting because I now sort of slightly fast forwarding, but we'll come back to it. But I, I now train other um, people to become bar instructors and so I often have discussions with people who are keen to do it who are already in other jobs want to kind of investigate passion projects side hustles whatever and, you know haven't have they got the balls to to kind of make that move and big decision like you you're potentially sacrificing a lot and um, you know I just think for me if I can't stop thinking about something I, I have to do it because I just don't think it's worth at some point in the future, looking back and thinking, God, I wish I'd done, I hate ever thinking I should have done that. You know, I'm um, David Goggins. Yeah. I assume. Yeah. Not personally. Not personally. Yeah. No, <laughs> every, surely everyone. <laughs> I ask that question when, if anyone goes, no, I'm like, are you living under <laughs> Who a even rock? Are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love his quote. And he says, I never wanted to get to the pearly gates. If there is something after mm. death mm. and uh, they look at you and they've got a list and say, this is everything you could have achieved. Mm. And on your list is nothing. Yeah. And it's very similar to what you just said. Like, imagine you get up there and your list is blank and all these things, yeah. all these amazing achievements you yeah. could have done. Yeah. Um, so you had the studio and now you're a bar instructor. How did that come about? And was that, I'm guessing that was post-row or how does that, um, no, did so that I, lead to the row? Yeah. Yeah. So I set the studio up um, like in 2009 um, and it was like an immediate success um you know i had been kind of teaching in hired spaces to kind of build up a client base but you know ultimately it was the first bar studio um in the uk and um uh, you know i had queues around the door around the corner um until i set up a, a booking system it literally was like i was turning hordes of people away <laughs> on a saturday when it was like nuts and you know incredibly like you know endorsing of the decision that I'd made to do it and it just you know but I taught 24 classes a week yeah for three years so intense really <laughs> intense and when you're teaching bar you're not just standing there shouting you know instructions at people you are doing it and you're doing more than you're expecting other people to do because you're also running around and you're correcting and you're you know vocalizing verbalizing all the cues and it's really hard work I mean I I very I got very close to burnout I think after that three years which is then when I um, created my instructor training program because I literally had to find people to train them to work at my studio to for my own self-preservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so again, it's like you know when needs must, you've got to get resourceful and and kind of create your own uh, way forward. So um, yeah, so I ran that studio for twelve years. Um, so it was a huge success, and um, you know I employed like. Oh, I mean, I can't even tell you over the years how many people I employed, but when I closed the studio down, I had about 12 people working for me. Um, 
And, uh, you know, essentially the reason that I shut it down was uh, because of COVID. Uh, so it really hit. It was a small um, boutique studio, you know, limited capacity. And when we were completely shut down, that was one thing. But then to be allowed to be open at, at restricted capacity of like five or six people, you're hemorrhaging money. Yeah, it just doesn't work. No. And, you know, the truth is, um, you know, you're a small business, like, established reputation but still people's behaviors changed in a big big way and during covid i think everybody's aware of that but um you know just people didn't necessarily want to train online they fell out of love with movement in some cases they then had other pressures on their lives with like homeschooling majority of my clients were women um you know and it de uh, all the homeschooling defaulted to women yeah. <laughs> honestly um, and that massively limited what they were then able to do with their time. And, um, you know, so it, it hit me hard for lots of different reasons. Also, some instructors, understandably, then went online with their own stuff. You know, they were freelance for me. And then they found that they could generate their own income you know the online world of of, of exercise kind of exploded, didn't it? Yeah, so it's the Wild West, I think. Now, yeah. I, I mean, I look at until I started getting coaching um, for the row, I always thought I knew a lot about training. Yeah. I had a great coach um, and he taught me so much. But now I look at people, especially young lads, young girls, that are probably in good nick just because they're young. And they've got good genes. And they've got good genes yeah. and now they're flogging and now programs. Apparently they're yeah, and I'm like, yeah, I look at them and I'm like, mm. you don't know your bloody ass from an elbow. Yeah. You couldn't run a bath, Yeah, you know, let alone a 12-week. Yeah program yeah. so yeah and yeah. Uh, you know and that was another aspect to it like I very quickly took everything online the minute that we were um, shut down but exactly like you say the whole world and his wife are suddenly fitness instructors and so you know the the cut through that you have or that you previously had and the reputation you previously had is like diluted so so much really hard to kind of um, get any standout so um, there were loads of different factors at play there, really, um, and not least the fact that I, was, I had to be shut down for large chunks of time and, you know, you don't have income, you can't pay your rent, right? Yeah. So, um, and uh, and then, of course, I had the row coming up, so I was like, okay, do I, do I kind of hold on to this or do I just let it go? Um, but... Before I actually got to that point with the row and with the studio closing down, I had already started to kind of explore the world of adventure. Um, and uh, I'd I'd been married for 12 years. I'd been in a relationship with that person for 20 years of my life. So since I was 19 years old. And um, I, it was quite a limiting relationship, uh, increasingly quite stifling, um, quite controlling. And um, I finally kind of took a call to take the reins of my own life and, um, you know, decided that I had the right to decide what the next chapter of my life would look like. I was kind of approaching my 40th, which I think is quite a, a sort of a momentous occasion for lots of people. You, you know, it causes you to kind of reflect and think about, well, what does the next 40 years of my life look like? Is it a repeat of the of what's gone before? Does it have to be? Um you know, and I, I kind of, I think I knew deep down that whatever I wasn't changing, I was ultimately choosing. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I'd say that was my first big step into unknown, into fear, 
uh, yeah, just totally uncharted territory. I didn't have my own bank account. Wow. Like I didn't have any real element of control over my life or my business. Um, and, you know, I think I just instinctively knew that that was not right. And that as much as I was told repeatedly that I wouldn't know what I was doing on my own, I think I knew that that is just he was chatting true. shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's say how it is. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I left that relationship. And then quite soon after that, I saw advertised, you know, I'd, I'd already been doing, I did British military fitness for about 12 years in Richmond Park. Absolutely loved it. I'd started to do more weightlifting as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I saw that SAS Who Dares Wins were allowing women to to uh, apply to participate. I find that so mad now that I look back and I think, God, imagine that that didn't used to be the case. Like only four years ago. Yeah, it's mad. It was only for men. Like it's so shit. Um, But uh, yeah, so I saw that avatar. I think I saw it on Anne Middleton's like Instagram feed or whatever. And I I think I re, I shared it on my stories. And, And then, I just had loads of people, like friends and just followers on Instagram saying like, well, are you going to apply then? And I was like, no, <laughs> that wasn't my point. It was just like, yay, this is, you know, about time kind of thing. And then and then I couldn't get it out of my head. And I had a few people who were in a good place to advise me that I probably had the mental aptitude for it. And um, anyway, so I thought, oh, fuck it, I'll just apply. Because yeah. then I can just shut them up and, you know, send in the application form and then just forget, forget about, about it. it yeah and then they'll never contact yeah me. exactly what are the chances yeah. and then uh yeah and then i got called up for a phys assessment that i had to go up to newcastle for and then i thought look i'll just do this this will be the most amazing day out that's slightly weird insight to how my brain works yeah. but um <laughs> you know i just thought what a great like opportunity i go and see if i've got the baseline fitness to get into SAS selection yeah. like amazing so um so I did that and I passed every element apart from the press-ups because I'm absolutely terrible at press-ups and we had to do like 44 press-ups in in two minutes I yeah think. it's the old military test yeah and they were really trying to fuck you up so like if your feet weren't if your ankle bones weren't glued together then they'd kind of kick you and you'd have to start again or what you know so it was like Anyway, so um, I just thought, I don't know why they did this, but... I'm sorry, this was in 2018. 18, yeah. Yeah, so while I was there to do the physical assessment, they, um, even though I hadn't passed the press-ups, they called me in to interview, and I was like, that's a bit weird, because like, I haven't actually passed the physical um, test that they set you, set you to do. Um, so I did that and then I left basically just thinking, well, that was fucking great. Like what an amazing vibe. And there weren't, there weren't that many women either, obviously, because, you know, you can imagine it's much more, it was much more established as a, as a men only thing at that point. Um, I'm sure there were absolutely shitloads of women who apply now, but, um, probably just to have a look at Foxy. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, my mum would be one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then. And then they like called me back and said, would you redo the press-ups? So I was like, yeah. Um, so I so I had to do that. And I and I got the call just after I'd done a PT session. And um, so I got 
my PT to like record it for me. But I'd already done like an hour workout, yeah. right? It's pretty intense. So I was like, fuck. So I tried it and I got, and I was too short, two reps short. And I was like, fuck, I've got to do this again. I can't let this go kind of thing. So I went and had a, an espresso, really strong coffee. And then it came back and I did it with six seconds to spare um, and sent that in. So they wanted to, ha you know, have a video recording of it. So I sent that in and then, and then just, you know, the cogs were turning and, you know, I went, I did um, an amazing um, challenge called the Strive Challenge, which was like 400 kilometers of cycling in Sardinia and, um, and two days sea kayaking. It's really cool. And while I was there, I was getting various phone calls and being asked for like my passport details, things like that. So I was thinking, oh God, this, this might happen. This is a bit mad. And then I got home and I had this like missed delivery card from the post office. And um, I was thinking, I'm not really expecting anything. So I left it a couple of days and then I went to get it. And it was two, two big boxes. I brought them back. I was like, what the hell is it? And they were military boots, like army boots and a, and a program, like a two week program, which, I, and I did not have two weeks. I had like, six days or something and I was like does this mean I'm in like yeah. I don't even know no one's even confirmed no. it yet like <laughs> it's so mad um anyway so I started to like um wear in the boots and like literally wore them to absolutely everything that I could and then the next thing I knew I was like at Heathrow Airport didn't well I was meant to not know where I was going but I did actually know where we were going um where did you go Chile Chile yeah so Again, really lucky that I got in before all the COVID stuff. Yeah. Because I'd far rather have been in Chile than Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. So they ended up for a few, a few series. So yeah, I was in. Then I was in the Andes, and uh, I mean, just what an amazing experience. How long was it? So I was there for eleven days. Okay. Obviously, you know, people leave at earlier yeah. points than that, but um, yeah. So I got right through to the final stages of the program. I did eight hours in interrogation and then it just was messing so badly with my head. Yeah, and it's disgusting, isn't it? Yeah, horrible. And you think, like, I remember before, before you think I went... You are like, oh, I know this yeah, is fake. The interrogation thing was brutal. Like, um, you know, some of the tasks we did, the physical tasks were insane, uh, also amazing, but um, that mental aspect. And you think it's a TV program. Like, I mean... Obviously, it's just fake. It's not real life. But they're so skilled at what they do and um, and really fucking good at it. And you start to question everything about yourself. And it's humiliating and degrading. And, um, you know, like they... I mean, they hit us with metal poles <laughs> around the back of our heads. You know, that stuff doesn't go on TV. But it was very, very real. and um, And also so cold. And we were in these like cotton boiler suits that were like really thin and it was it was freezing. Um and we're in stress positions and and also totally sleep deprived. Hadn't slept for like I think thirty six hours, hadn't eaten either, so they'd started really rationing our food. And then in the last twenty four hours I we got like some nuts or something. That was literally it. So you're you know, the idea is obviously you're on empty. Hundred grams of al almonds. Yeah. Is that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Mouth's um, really dry as well. They're exactly. salted. It's just like pfft. Yeah. Um so yeah, after eight hours I was like I I I VW'd. I decided I'd completed every phase of the um programme and I was really pretty proud of what I'd achieved. 
certainly versus my expectation. Like I didn't think I'd be there two days in. And then suddenly you start thinking, well, that guy's just left. Fuck. I thought Collecting he was, souls. Yeah. yeah. Thought he was a lot better than me. Oh my God, hang on here. Like, you know, I might be, I might do better than I thought. Every time, sounds really bad. Every time somebody left, it really, you know, boosted my confidence and my inner belief. No, it does. When mm-hmm. all through my military career, any hard course I've been on, whether that be all arms commando course, dive course, when people rap mm. a VW, mm. it, it's like you, you inherit their energy. Mm. And then, yeah. What we used to say as well when lads would rap, you got any like sweets or anything left? <laughs> well, you Pass don't. Them over. Yeah, you don't need them now because yeah. you're going. Yeah. And then oh, the we definitely didn't yeah, have yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> there did were it, no sweets. Did it surprise you how realistic it was? Yeah. Did yeah. You, did you think it was going to be? Because I've done, you know, been to filming and that. And it's like, yeah, stop. Everyone has a break. Oh, but it wasn't. Though. Wasn't like to, that at to all. To be completely honest, like uh, you know, some of the hardest parts of it are not what you you even get to see on TV. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they don't show the hours and hours of anxiety and, you know, you don't know what's coming next. No. Absolutely no idea. And you're mostly active all day. You know, you get these short stints of like going back to your back to your dorm or your, like we literally stayed in what we thought were like pig styes, like these shit. Like, I don't even know what they were. Huts. Like I see it. I, I was watching the one that's on at the moment that's in like in the jungle and it, they're staying in some kind of like fancy hotel <laughs> type look. ours was we were literally in sheds i swear to god um with like cling film on the windows because there were no window panes it was crazy um but yeah there were times where you'd sit on your bed not knowing whether you had one minute five minutes two hours um and what was coming next. And I remember at one point just thinking, I don't know if I've got the nerve to like sit this out. The anxiety, all the chatter in your head kind of takes over. And then actually you get taken out on a task and you do it. And then you're like, okay, no, that's, it's all right. It's, you know, I say that about rowing the Atlantic, yeah. like, you know, you're nervous and then you just get out yeah, and, and, and then you just do it. it. You just yeah, do it. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's bizarre. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we have to get to Ocean Rowing. Yeah. So we've spoke about how you sort of come into doing SAS Who Des Wins. But where did the initial idea come to row an ocean? <laughs> so um, I was actually at a press event for SAS Who Dares Wins. And I met someone who said, do you want to... Had Foxy done it at that point? Yeah. Fo- yeah, Foxy Fo- was yeah, on yeah. the series. That no, I no, sorry, not oh. on the series. Oh, the row, his he, row. Yeah. Um, I don't know, actually. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think it was after that. Um, no, not that that was, that was sort of necessarily a part. Although I did talk to him about his row to get some tips. Tips and, you know. Um, although they were like five big oh, guys. Yeah. Big, they smelly well. guys. Yeah, on I, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure what their record... I know they broke a record. Yeah. I think they went... They went to Portugal. I don't, I don't know what they Mainland. I think they went mainland Europe to mainland South America. Yeah. I finished in French yeah. Ghana or something. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. normally where people finish yeah. um, when they do that route. Um, yeah, but so I was at this press event and this girl said to me, um, do you want to row an ocean? And I was just in this phase of my life, like post-SAS, exhilaration, just thinking, oh my God, I've just started saying yes to things that I would never have considered or would never have become opportunities in my life because I was like living according to somebody else's narrative the whole time. And... Um, I just started saying yes to things. And the thing that I remember flashing through my head at that 
literally at that moment when she asked me um, was that I, if if there was anything on SAS that I was sort of disappointed in myself about, it was like my my um, performance in the water. So we did a, a one particular water task where I actually nearly drowned. I've spoken to quite a few people about that moment since who were either on SAS with me or, you know, part of the film crew or, you know, the the rigging. And they were like, fucking hell, you nearly drowned. Um Anyway, so I kind of came out of that just thinking, because I, I had this like near drowning incident when I was a child. I spent my whole adult life avoiding water. So I knew that that was going to be the thing that would kind of catch up with me. And um, and when she asked me, do you want to row an ocean? I was just, I remember it flashing through my head thinking. I was just like, fear of water, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it, it was a forcing function, right? It had to be, I had to tackle it. I had to confront it. And I remember just thinking, I just got to keep saying yes to things that come my way. And... I didn't know what rowing an ocean looked like. I didn't know what the boat would look like. I didn't know what period of time it would take. I, did, I literally had none of the information. And I just said, yeah, okay. If you'd have known, you probably would have said yeah, no. Yeah, probably. So, so initial initial idea. Yeah. And this is what people don't, you know, my friends, they, well, my friends maybe might be a little bit different, but a lot of people just think you turn up and you just row. Mm. So initial idea mm. to actually day one of the start line. I know you had COVID, but mm. how long, sorry, let's go initial idea to your proposed start how long was that uh that was two years two years yeah yeah so um so the girl that asked me if i wanted to row an ocean she'd started to get a crew together they asked me to join them and then decided that because of my fear of water they felt like they needed someone with more confidence in the water and i was kind of pissed off about the whole how that whole process had been run because i was like come on you knew exactly who I was before even having discussions you know um anyway but I then had the idea in my head and I was like I'm not going to let this go so then I found another crew who were as luck would have it looking for uh, someone else to join them so they were they were at the time they were meant to be a four but they were actually a three so I approached them and uh and they wanted me in so and actually that original crew disbanded that didn't they never got to the start line never made it never made it no, so amazing. it's interesting isn't it um so yeah so i started out as a i mean girls who dare that was the you know the original um crew and and that was the name that obviously we went under for the actual row itself in 2021 um but yeah it was i was very much under invitation from three other women at that point then one of them dropped out, then someone else joined us, then she dropped out. I mean, honestly, the amount of crew changes we went through was unbelievable. We ended up um, as a three, and uh, Kat, Anna, and myself, and we packed the boat up. It was ready to go. And um, and then COVID hit. So literally the next weekend, the, they announced that the, the row had been postponed. So we'd raised 70,000 pounds and uh, got ourselves well not quite ready because what we hadn't done were any of the courses um so we were like planning nah, you don't need that <laughs> we were planning on getting all the other stuff ready and then you know really blasting the courses to make sure it was like really fresh in our minds makes whatever. sense good idea um i don't know if it was a good idea or it uh. wasn't but so then then the whole thing was off and then we kind of sat in limbo for a while. I mean, I just remember the moment that we heard that it was postponed. We were just like, oh, my God, all that work for nothing. It was just heart-wrenching, honestly. And um, and then Kat and Anna weren't able to defer their places to the following year. And I 
<laughs> yet again have this like you know thing in my head that that's what I want to do so I was like god can I do I really know enough about this shit to carry this campaign forward um and I through my contacts had raised not all of the finance but a lot of it so I felt yeah. a huge sense of responsibility Pressure. and duty to the people who put money forward you know a lot of it was corporate sponsorship but still and um but I knew nothing about ocean rowing really at that stage Kat and Anna both were quite experienced rowers river rowers so at least they had that um so yeah i was literally in this place of like can i take this forward can i find two new crewmates keep the campaign alive will chris let me hold on to the boat so uh so yeah chris martin not from coldplay not the lead singer of coldplay was the guy that we were, <laughs> we were losing our boat from and um yeah and i called him up and i just said like will you let me hold on to the boat and uh you know, he was one of the first people ever to row across the Pacific. And he knew how inexperienced I was, but I think he also had a really good sense of how determined I was. And uh, he said, yeah, I believe in you. Go and, go and do it. Amazing, amazing. So how, did, how did you keep so positive and determined that you were going to achieve that when you had COVID and you'd lost all your teammates? Mm. What was your mindset like? Um, I just, I think when... Things get in my way actually strengthens my resolve to, to do the thing. I think if I believe so strongly in something that, again, like I said, I can't stop thinking about it. I just felt like instinctively that had to be the next chapter in my story. Um, you know, that I'd done SAS, that I'd left that shit marriage, that I had started to find out who I was finally at the age of 40. Uh, by that point, getting on, like I was probably 42 or whatever. And, um, you know, just feeling like uh, it was my duty to myself, but maybe it was also a duty to other women, young girls who didn't have, you know, like I did growing up, they didn't, they may not have role models. I think, you know, there need to be more women putting themselves out there doing this stuff. And um, it's not easy, but, um, you know, I just felt like I want to show other women and young girls that you can do anything if you put your mind to it like you don't need prior knowledge experience you don't need to have always been good at sport your whole life um you can make decisions and choices at any point in your life at any age that change your course and oh. that's where i was at i suppose and that's a great motivation to have inside you yeah. so you pull this team together yep um how was that you know going from sort of just a part of the crew to really like the leader the skipper yeah. how was how did you find that um terrifying <laughs> like honestly I was like I felt like and it's not the first time in my life it won't be the last time either but I was just like I do not know what the fuck I'm doing like I'm so badly winging it but um you know I just a big big believer in momentum and just taking tiny steps and there you know there would be genuinely times quite close to when when we finally did leave um to do the road from San Francisco where I'd literally wake up at 4am just going what the fuck are you doing like genuinely terrified and having to like then having hours of you know sleepless nights and just waking up the next day and going okay what one thing can I do right now that is going to take me closer to that forget about the big overwhelming scary prospect of of you know rowing an entire ocean <laughs> like what can I do right now today that is going to get me past that feeling of fear and overwhelm 
um it was it was hard I'm not gonna deny that for a second and I was still you know still running my studio still had a full-time job at that stage and you know it was it was hard work um it was also hard to you know obviously I found two new crewmates um but that came quite late on so um one of them only joined with like three months to go and I didn't meet her until we got to San Francisco so we were trying to get to know each other on Zoom. We were trying to train together a bit on Zoom. We were training in our living rooms because all the gyms were shut. We had to do all our courses online or, or most of them. And like, I don't know if you actually, it sounds like you didn't do your um, uh, yacht master. Uh, no, I didn't do it. Well. <laughs> it's like, didn't I don't do know how you got away with that. Nav- navigation but you know, we had to learn chart navigation on Zoom. Yeah, impossible. I mean, like my brain doesn't even function well with things like that. Yeah. full stop if I had a, like a ADHD you, ca- the, you have to close the, the loop yeah, yeah. struggle to care, yeah. maintain attention yeah exactly and I just you know a lot of it's quite mathematical and oh man I found that so that's hard. why I just didn't bother see <laughs> <laughs> survival yet done I mean, that no one's work a radio the truth is obviously you have a GPS and at no point over our 60 days did we ever get a chart out to yeah. look at it so there you go but um, you know, we, we had to do all these things. We were part of an official race. Mm. So, you know, there were there were requirements to participate in the race and you had to tick the boxes. You had to show that you'd done these courses. It was hard work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, I didn't, we weren't all three of us together until we got San Francisco 10 days before we were about to row. Nice. And I, will, and I always think having that team dynamic is so important and getting it right that's why I did it as a solo so I just had to rely on me yeah so you trying to sort of build that aircraft mid-flight yeah nuts yeah how was the um how was the actual 60 days um not amazing (laughs) (laughs) overall the Um, fear in your eyes yeah it's a shame this isn't visual (laughs) so um yeah I mean we were three three people right so Three isn't a great number, but that's also not an excuse. But it very quickly became a dynamic of two plus one. So the two other girls that I rode with were friends already. And that's how uh, Orla came to be part of it quite late on. Because it was a, she was a friend of Jane's who said, yeah, I'll step in. And I mean, hats off to her for that. I mean, the bravery of just saying, I don't know anything about ocean rowing, but I'll, with three to four months to go, I'll like... Uh, you know, I'll do what I'm it in. takes and I'm in and I'll step on this boat. And, you know, at least Jane and I had had some opportunity to get on the boat and get some practice hours. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was tough. And I think I, you know, I had, I was very seasick. So right from the start, I, I mean, I was seasick for 20 days, like violently. Um, I was seasick on one training row and I was like, this right. cannot happen yeah. on the day of the oh, race. Like I had all the drugs, I had all the patches, I had um, a, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. I had two like wristbands. A, a wrist, yeah. Well, I had I had the elastic wristbands, yeah. but I'd also purchased this really expensive thing. I can't remember what it's called. I think it helps to stop um, um, uh, like nausea and pregnancy and stuff. Like it, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, so well it sends like vibration. Work. It did not work. It was a complete disaster. I literally threw everything at it, and I so I was violently seasick for twenty days, and then I had three days when I didn't feel sick anymore, but I couldn't keep food down. So that so I found out later that's refeeding syndrome where your body just rejects the food. Because then gone so long yeah. without it. And I know I was just at the depths of depression. Honestly, I was just like, how can I carry this on? Like. And I didn't miss a single shift. 
because rowing was the only thing that made me feel better. Yeah. So I was like, my output was massive, like you know, three three hour shifts, yeah. three hour, three hours on, three hours off, uh, for twenty four hours, and I was basically eating nothing. Um. So yeah, it was, it was how hard. Much weight, and how much weight did you lose? Overall, I lost fifteen kilos, but I think there was probably a point at which I lost more than that but then gain some weight because yeah. then obviously my appetite came back and I was eventually able to eat. So, um, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> pretty significant weight loss. But I think my original point was that, you know, I think, I don't think it's the only reason at all, but that probably p- played a role in the team dynamic because I was um, pretty much incapable of doing anything other than rowing and vomiting. <laughs> um, you know, so Jane and all are kind of established their routine um you know and sharing up the tasks and they you know they were on the whole pretty great about doing that and uh, you know quite supportive and and sympathetic for my situation um but you know it then set a precedent that was very difficult for me to kind of reintegrate into um you know they had a lot of common reference points and um it just became very divisive um to the point where um, you know, I'd I'd be lying in the cabin and I'd hear them talking about me. Um, I discovered some of my snacks had been eaten and I ran out of my snack supply. It was like 20 days of the road to go. Oh. Um, I'd get stonewalled quite a lot, just completely blanked, ignored um, for absolutely no reason. You know, the team dynamic at times was really bad really difficult to kind of tolerate and I found it very isolating I was really homesick um and and one of the worst things of that was was feeling the need to tolerate shit behavior because you can't let conflict escalate on a 24 foot boat in the middle of an ocean you just can't um because there is nowhere to go absolutely nowhere so um you know and I'm sure I did things that probably annoyed them but you know it just it just became a very isolating experience for me you know they were cooking food for each other and I was doing my own and you know it just wasn't so so back to my answer to your very first question about winning and winning well yeah we got the world record you know we were successful on paper no one died no one got injured uh no one fell overboard although I was quite tempted to throw myself in on a few (laughs) occasions but um god it must have been bad if you were scared (laughs) of water and you think about (laughs) that exactly but um you know it's it there are I have regrets like there are you know that it wasn't the outcome that I really wanted it to be I wanted to have this incredible team experience where we could walk down a street in years to come and share a look of achievement and solidarity and um you know I don't know I don't think we'll ever have that sadly but um you know so it was hard and there were various moments that uh, that caused further impact such as discovering with like 10 days to go that no one would be there to greet us so our friends and family couldn't fly out because of the covid restrictions on travel so imagine like I'm assuming you had a great welcome right yeah we had nothing I mean, well, I say we had nothing. We had the the locals in Hawaii were absolutely amazing, and actually, we had lots of boats coming out to meet us, and like Hawaii Five O boats and yeah. people out on surfboards and stuff like that it was amazing. Um, and obviously, the Great Pacific Race organizers were there, like three of them, and there were people in the yacht club and things like that. So we did get a bit of fanfare, and um, you know, that was that was really heartwarming. But there was no one who who really you know meant anything to me 
to be there like for any of us yeah. really so it was that was a hard thing to be like oh my god we've finally done this thing and then okay let's just go back to our hotel room <laughs> yeah it's so interesting <laughs> to hear you say that because Duncan Roy talks about his first crossing and have you spoke to him about his first crossing no very similar thing right. so it was a paid for seats right so basically there's a skipper who owns an ocean rowboat yeah, for anyone yeah. who doesn't know you pay your 10 grand yeah. you get to go yeah so you've got five individuals there the skipper and four more mm. and he just said they weren't a team and i used to get asked oh, why don't you just do it with someone right and people think it is just just pick up some punter down the local rowing club who's yeah. really fit and you'll yeah. and you'll get across quicker yeah, yeah. and it's just and it could not be further from the truth no. like you might as well have done it solo yeah i think yeah, I, f I felt in some respects that I had. I mean, actually, one of the really interesting reflections, and I do know someone who solo rode, you know, Leah Ditton. She's so, she's the um, set the record for the, I think, the first female to row solo across the Pacific. And, um, you know, I know a bit about her experience, and I think she experienced some real emotional trauma doing that on her own. But it's often gone through my head, like, really, what's worse? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Who would ever know unless they did both, right? But um, I guess we'll have to do both. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird because I honestly didn't feel that lonely. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was like alone. As well, I was alone. You know, there's yeah. no one else there. Yeah. But I just used to get on the sat phone if I missed someone. Right. Like, you know, I used to... Yeah. I have never felt more lonely in my whole life. And I think, actually, it, it enhances... And that's so bizarre because yeah. I was literally... And I didn't feel too bad. I think and you, you were there can feel two, more yeah. lonely in the presence of other people yeah. than you Definitely than agree. you can just on your own. Um, you know, so it's not the first time in my life I've felt like that. You can feel like that in a relationship as well, right? So, mm. um, yeah, but, but, I, but obviously there was no way out you know no quick or easy way out or off the boat so um yeah just what the emotional endurance that it gave me was uh was quite something like yeah. having to really start to dig into my capabilities and resources to deal with emotions and process them have the emotional maturity to not escalate things because you can't yeah. But also not to ruminate and because that's, you know, especially when you're feeling um, isolated and, you know, cast out. Um, it's hard not to kind of ruminate and get into all the kind of negative thought spirals. And, you know, you can't do that. You've got to kind of process. You've got to let go. You've got to take each new day as it comes and try and maintain some optimism about, well, it could change any time. It, perhaps it's going to get better. N never really did, but um, you know. That well, you finished. It gets so you through it, yeah. right? So I, I broke my finger. On, um, oh. Yeah, I crushed it in a parachute anchor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you. Oh my God, when on I was the rowing. Yeah, yeah. Shit. So I had to take it out from rowing. It's funny you should say that. Like ruminating. I was like, well, if this doesn't get any better by tomorrow, yeah. I'll have to get rescued. Yeah. And that, and it was like a maybe ninety days, and I was like ninety days for nothing. I was yeah. like. And I've lost all the money on the boat, like yeah, this, because yeah, they yeah. can't recover the boat. Yeah. But you, I just found myself. I was like, it. I would say to myself that day, "We're rowing tomorrow, yeah. regardless if that finger hurts. Yeah. We're yeah. rowing because sitting around isn't getting us any closer to the yeah. finish." Would you say your experience on the row motivated you to go and do the ice ultra? Totally, yeah. Because you I, wanted to win well. Yeah, absolutely. I needed to know that. Well, so I, I kind of started to feel like I never wanted to be in a team environment ever again which was the exact opposite of where I wanted to be. Um, 
And I think because I hadn't grown up in that world of like team sports and been particularly mm. sporty as a kid or through uni or whatever, I really wanted to have that experience in my life and a really positive one. Um, so yeah, so I kind of, but I guess I kind of instinctively knew that um, as the idea of being in a team environment became almost like the object of my avoidance, it therefore had to also be the thing that I lent into. And so, um, yeah, I recruited a friend and we went, um, decided to run 250 miles, 250 kilometers, sorry, through the Arctic. So we chose, we specifically chose a an environment that we would least enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Being cold. Because, you know, you can do them, like, obviously, Marathon de Salle, but you could do yeah. them in a uh, warm crossing. climate. Yeah. Uh, which is obviously extremely hot and, you know, brings its own challenges. But, uh, yeah, so we did that. And, um, you know, we totally prioritized our team ethos. We took a totally different approach to it. We talked about all the stuff that could go wrong. Um, you know, we chose to focus on the things that we could control. Um, you know, we had a buddy system. We used it. Um, it worked. Uh, we talked about how we were going to deal with problems and, how you know, we practiced, like, how how to interact with each other and how we would respond to difficult situations or confrontation. Um, you know, we, we kind of really, really took a different approach to that. Um, like and communication yeah, is key, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And we looked out for each other. Like that was the really important thing for me was like having empathy, having forgiveness. I mean, you know, a 250 kilometer foot race even in the Arctic is a very different thing to a 60 day ocean row. Right. But you know, it wasn't, we weren't in the Olympics. We were just there to have an amazing adventure. Mm. And so the important thing was that if one of us needed to stop or go slow, like we were going to stop, we were going to stop and we're going to go, we were going to go slower. We were going to do it together. And we, and we did, we crossed the, the finish line. There were, there were, can't remember how many women entered it, but only three of us finished it. Yeah, that's incredible. So, and we were we were sort of joint second after this amazing endurance uh, athlete, who was like from Slovakia and had all this amazing experience on snowshoes. Yeah, yeah. We literally never put the <laughs> snowshoes on. We went <laughs> we went up to Hyde Park one afternoon and put our snowshoes on and ran in the horse tracks. That yeah. was the extent of our <laughs> snowshoe training. Yeah, um, happy with this, right? Yeah, pub. like let's do it. So, uh, yeah, but it was brutal. It was like, it got to like minus 35 degrees at times. Like you couldn't stop. You actually couldn't stop because you would risk hypothermia. But you've got to be careful as well. You don't sweat too much. Yeah, right. Yeah. Where yeah. were you sleeping as well? Um, so uh, <laughs> different venues, should I say. They were basically like huts. huts. Sometimes they were like um, teepees on reindeer skins. No, but that was cool. One night we slept in a disused sauna, which you kind of think, oh, that'd be all right. Nice nah, and warm. It was disused. Yeah. It was wet. It was freezing cold. You're sleeping on a wooden floor. It was horrendous. So, and actually that in hindsight became the best part of the whole experience. And, you know, there were times where I mean, we'd be, we'd be out for 18 hours a day in these freezing cold conditions. And bear in mind, it gets cold, it gets dark at like three o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. So the majority of your day is dark and cold. And, um, you know, you'd kind of get to the end, to the finish line of each stage and think, oh my God, at least we get to like, we get to sleep, rest, recover. I mean, the conditions for sleeping were really, really basic. You had to make your own food. You had to like, you know, undress, 
sort out your injuries and your blisters and all of that kind of Well, I should stuff. hope you have to undress yourself. You know, <laughs> just a key user. I'll undress you. These, <laughs> um, these huts, like there was no running water. There weren't even yeah. toilets. Like it was really, really basic. And at the time we were like, this is actually fucking ridiculous. <laughs> what the we've fuck? We've paid good money. Yeah, to we've it. actually paid to come and do this. This is crazy. And uh, yeah, in hindsight, we were like, that was the best like that morning when we woke up and our faces were completely swollen and yeah. we were like raging and crying and you know it was like that was what it was all about yeah. and you still Those get memories. through it yeah it's um it's funny when we were when I did the outcome across him I remember in the mornings the weather sw- the temperature swings were massive I mean it, it was just cold for you yeah. but our water bottles used to freeze oh, yeah. but yeah. at least but you know by like 10 o'clock that it'd be boiling up right how did you did you have to sleep with your water bottles like so they didn't freeze like yeah they did freeze yeah um yeah we had to fill we had to fill them with hot boiling water, water. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that they they would not freeze for as long as possible i mean there were like checkpoints at like every sort of 10 15 kilometers yeah um but yeah, I mean, it was pretty sketchy at time. I remember one time when we had to get, I mean, it wasn't all flat either. There were some big climbs. And I remember one particular climb and there was this blizzard just suddenly kicked in. Like it would literally go from blue skies and sunshine to white out. And um, I hadn't brought my goggles down over my eyes. And uh, and then I did and I realized they were frozen. And I had like literally one tiny pin dot that I could see through in my right eye. And I was trying to shout to my friend Kate, who I was doing it with, to tell her that I couldn't see a fucking thing. She couldn't hear me because the winds were so high. I mean, that was like, it felt like a lifetime. It was probably about an hour of hard slog uphill, up a massive incline. In whiteout. In whiteout. And she, and I was behind her, and she didn't know that I couldn't see anything apart from this tiny dot. And it's all like I tilt in your head like yeah, that. Yeah, and I literally was focused on, I have to see Kate's boots. If I can see her boots, then, because I could have gone off a completely different path. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, ser- it's serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, there were people who were medevaced out for hypothermia. I can imagine, yeah. Helicopter. Well, minus 35. Yeah. You can't mess around, me. no. So um, what's the next challenge? <laughs> um, well, my current, I, do I call it a challenge? It is a challenge. It's very challenging. Um, I've recently set up my uh, own business called We Are Intrepid. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm doing lots of keynote speaking, and um, which I love doing, sharing my story and all the kind of lessons that I've learned and all the strategies for mental strength and and uh, all that good stuff and I often get people coming up to me afterwards when they realize that I sort of am a pretty ordinary person really then then it kind of opens up discussion for people to ask me or themselves like what could they do that's you know a bit different to a marathon that really anyone can sign up to but you know realistically people don't have three years of their life to dedicate to an ocean row um so i just kind of started thinking like you know there needs to be more out there for people to like get a super concentrated dose of these kinds of life-changing experiences right expeditions that you and i have experienced and we know what that brings to our lives oh yeah it's amazing so much purpose yeah a sense of achievement exactly so could you give that to somebody in a way to show them what their capabilities are. Because I strongly believe we are all made the same. No, yep. There is absolutely nothing any different to me she than could anyone do else. Yeah. What I did. And it's so easy to look at what other people do and think, I could never do that. They're that kind of person that you I'm not. You defeated yourself. As yeah. soon as you say you can't do something, yeah. you defeated yourself. 
So We're Intrepid is, uh, well, it's really like a philosophy and a kind of um, personal growth community, but the essence of what we do is to take people away on adventure trips, to take them out of their comfort zone physically, mentally, in amazing locations where there might be extremes of temperature, um, you know, difficult terrain. So we've been to the Highlands in Scotland um, where we do lots of like walking, climbing, abseiling. There's like fear exposure involved in it. It's all very safe and very accessible. So nothing is like skill-based. It's just down to, you know, digging deep. Whether and you've got the whether bottle you've to got do the it. Bottle, exactly, yeah. the minerals to do it. Um, I'm taking a group out to Norway in March. Amazing. Um, there are still some spaces there if anyone wants to jump on that. But, Fantastic um, plug. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's four days out in the wilderness. Like, uh, you know, we're doing different types of Nordic skiing, husky sledding, which I went out in December to recce the trip. And I thought the husky sledding would be like the relaxing part. Yeah, you yeah. know, you're lying down in a sled and it's just lovely winter wonderland. It's fucking hard. It's like mental, ex it like adrenaline yeah. filled. You know, you're having to like run behind the sled at times, up hills, drive with your legs and then jump back on at just the right moment. You're going through woodland, you're dicking, ducking and diving outside out of branches and all of that kind of stuff. Um, amazing and really good for teamwork because you're you know you have your partner is in the sled and they're your eyes and you have to get some great communication skills going on um, so we're doing that ski kiting as well so um, yeah and then in the evenings we do like mental skills work and reflection and debriefs and um, and then I bring in different experts as well at times so um, they kind of will talk about pain and performance and how pain works in our brains and the sort of neuroscience of it. Um, and Sophie's coming uh, oh, yeah. to Norway, actually. So she's going to be doing some amazing stuff with us about sleep and, um, you know, stress and fatigue. I think I'm a strong believer that the more information and knowledge you have, the more you can override the kind of natural inclinations of your brain to shut you down before you achieve what you're capable 100%. of. 100%. It's so like with the ocean rowing. People say, oh, you're not scared you, if the boat capsizes. I was like, yeah, but I'll be tied on. Mm. You exactly. know, if you know how your life raft yeah. works, if it does all go peak tong, right, I know, and I know I'll be saved because yeah. in 12 hours, my EPUB's been going off, yeah. ships are going to come and rescue exactly. me. So I totally agree. The more yeah. knowledge you have, yeah. the less fear yeah. you will feel. I remember before I did SAS, someone told me who had been in the SAS, it was a very clandestine conversation that was never to be referred to or spoken about obviously i'd tell everyone that i had <laughs> it um but he told me that you can function on 90 minutes sleep a night not indefinitely and obviously your function would be uh to some extent affected but you can cope with 90 minutes sleep a night and i remember the first night being on sas getting 90 minutes sleep and everyone was like freaking out you know oh my god we've hardly we've only been asleep for like an hour and a half whatever and i was in my head i was thinking that's okay though that's the that's the amount that we need yeah let's go let's go not let's 89 90 <laughs> yeah no Vic I've absolutely loved speaking to you this afternoon and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast I've got one final question for you yeah um how if sorry if you could give your younger self some advice what would it be oh um I think it would be that you have already got inside of you everything that you need so trust yourself and believe in yourself believe in your power believe in your capabilities uh, like I said earlier we are all built exactly the same don't listen to other people's narratives about who you are find out for yourself um, and uh, yeah 
everything everything will be all right love that back <laughs> yourself everything will yeah, be all right absolutely like i said thank you so much for coming on guys that is the end of the episode today if you've enjoyed it please could you follow like and subscribe as it really helps grow the podcast thank you for listening vicky that was awesome appreciate that you're Enjoy very it. welcome loved it